0: The Landlord and Lawyer Podcast with Ben Beadle and Tessa Shepperson.
1: Hello, everybody. Um, he is Ben Beadle. He's the landlord,
2: and she's Tessa Shepperson. She's the lawyer,
1: and this is the Landlord and Lawyer Podcast. Back with you again after a little bit of a gap because we had a bit of a problem with um, finding our last guest, but don't worry about that we've got a brilliant guest today haven't we Ben?
2: We have we're going to be talking um, build to rent uh, with uh, an old contact of mine well he's not that old actually Uh, (laughs) Richard Richard Berridge um, who's the head of strategy at Housie, but well known in the housing sector Um, and looking at some of the differences between build to rent and being an individual landlord and whether there's any learnings between the two let's have a listen. (laughs)
1: today our very special guest Richard Beridge, who is very well known in the property industry in all sorts of categories really. Richard would you like to introduce yourself and as this episode is um, specifically going to be about build to rent so to tell us a bit about your background in that area.
0: Well um, it's, uh, it's quite a large background really. I mean, I've been in property for 40 years so Um, In one sort or another, I started off like probably many people do in in agency, both in sales and lettings and um, and uh, to cut a long story short, having been in for property development and in property investment. um, I sort of ended up in the sort of PRS sort of investment or or built rent world pretty much from when it started. Um, And, you know, the the early stages of built to rent were probably in around 2010. and um if you, if you if you guys all remember you probably remember Delancey and Qatar DR buying the east village yes uh, uh, the Olympic village um and that deal was struck uh before the Olympics so they were always intended to take it over and create one of the big sort of PRS schemes there um wasn't necessarily called built rent at that time and of course fizzy living uh also one of the earlier ones and Harry Downs uh, there uh, along with his collaboration with Metropolitan was uh, one of the uh, one of the early early start, uh, early starters of, of of the of the sector, so I sort of came into it around about that sort of time. I was working for Residential Land at the time. Um, we formed a partnership with uh, Ivanhoe Cambridge and Apollo Global Real Estate. Um, it was in essence not necessarily built to rent, but we own sort of large sort of swathes of London and blocks in London predominantly. Uh, predominantly. It was it was called. Uh, prime central london thing and and for the institutions it was a bit of a it was a bit of an opportunist fund as opposed to a pure sort of investment play it was it, well, it was, you know the holding time was never intended to be sort of uh, long horizon it was more sort of a five to five to sort of uh, seven year hold time so um i've been involved in built ever since then really uh, pretty much as a consultant and so i've consulted with a number of companies um and because of my because of my background, the the you know consultancy has breadth to it. So it's been about viability, it's been about management, it's been about you know uh, tenant welfare, tenant engagement, pretty much the whole the whole scape you know with what we do in the PRS uh, at the moment. So that's sort of me in a nutshell in terms of that. And then you know currently what I do is I sort of brought that um, learning into um, housing. Um, which is, um, as you guys probably know, it's a sort of uh, it's a digital platform. And you know, if, if I were to give you the sort of, I don't know, probably what we try and do is, if I were to give you the housing sort of elevator, you know, uh, pitch, you know, which a lot of people talk about, it's it, it sort of it sort of goes along line along the lines on the way that property is let hasn't changed um uh in decades it's, t- it's time consuming inefficient, and, and cost a fortune and i guess most landlords would probably agree with that but <laughs> that's sort of now a thing of a past thanks to houses fully managed service so um because we're a tech company we've made it easy by com- by combining really smart tech with the expert personal account management which we give to both landlords and tenants you know and there's a complete visibility of that sort of renting process which we think is really important um, we have a dashboard at Housie, which gives real-time access to everything from viewings and offers. Um, and you can even order furniture, and manage repairs, and you can do all that at the touch of a button. And I think the, the, one of the key things there that sort of drew me there is, is that they've never thought that it was fair to charge a percentage of, of the rent. They've gone with all of the flat fee, and they charge, you know, which is a fixed monthly fee, and it doesn't matter how many bedrooms you've got or, you know, or the, or the size of your rental income. Um, yeah. So, so come and join us. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's my advert. That. So that's our elevated pitch. Okay.
1: Um, I mean, with the, this, this episode is looking particularly at uh, at the build to rent sector. Um, this this seems to the, the private rented sector on the whole seems to be mostly small landlords. Um, right. it it does it doesn't seem to have taken off with the with the larger commercial landlords in the private rented sector.
0: Why? Why do you think that is? Well, um, if yeah, well, funny enough, I actually have done a paper on this. So it's quite, <laughs> thanks for the question. Um, I can refer to my notes. Uh, no, it, it's a uh, um, well, it's an interesting question because uh, it was slow to take off at the beginning. Because um, if you remember, right from the big right from the beginning, I mean, sort of two years into probably when Bill started, as uh, Adrian Montague re- re- produced his report, which is all about the barriers to uh, institutional investment in the PRS. And a lot of it to do was to do with um, reputational risk, um, and also, you know, if you think about a lot of institutional, I um, think Ben knows this because he's having worked with touch. So if you talk to a lot of institutional investors and, and, and asset management managers, their experience is all around the commercial real estate sector, mm-hmm. and they couldn't understand how residential could fit in in with it. It's you know, it's messy and bitty and hard to manage, and in you know, all sorts of things. And you had you know, hundreds or potentially thousands of tenants. All, all, all making life difficult for you, potentially. And whereas if they end a shopping centre, they had an anchor tenant who might be Boots or it might be John Lewis or it might be whoever it might be. And um, and, and frankly, it was a commercial relationship they had and anything that went wrong or anything, any spats they had might have with them would be entirely private on commercial. Whereas if you have a spat with one tenant out of 4,000, that will go completely, um, that will go social mad. So, um, so they were concerned about sort of things like that. And then also it was about scale of deployment of capital what was the opportunity? Where could they deploy their capital? And the only areas really they could do that was in, you know, uh, uh, dense urban areas. And the opportunities to, to develop quickly in those areas is, is very limited. It takes an awfully long, and all, I know you guys know this, but it takes an awfully long time to, to come up with a scheme, to get that scheme through planning, and then ultimately to construct it. And when we're talking about uh, buildings that contain maybe four or five hundred flats in the most part. So we're talking probably maybe seven years to get to the point where you're actually going to deliver something. So at the moment, you know, if you look at the um, the various numbers around built-to-rent, um, we are probably seeing, so Savills and, um, the B- and the British Property Federation put some numbers out, and Knight Frank and Homeviews do some numbers as well. The difference between those numbers is that Knight Frank used the threshold of 20 homes and above, and Knight Frank used 75 homes and above so there's a disparity but fundamentally sort of you know, there are about 40 to 50,000 operational build-to-rent homes in the UK at the moment and probably two or three times that number in planning or in construction so we're up to about ish 180 to 190,000 homes um, either operational in planning um, or, or under construction. Richard tell but, me
2: do you, do you think that um... That sort of skepticism that we saw a few years ago with all of the you know reasons that you sort of said at the outset, have people got over those now? Are they still a concern?
0: Um, no, well, they're less of a concern. You still got some of the fund managers who still think that um, buying into uh, logistics or you know, um, offices or whatever retail probably not really done them no quite but, um, uh you know is, is the way to go because that's what they've always done and that's what they managed but sort of residential has always been considered as an alternative asset class mm. it's now become more mainstream amongst very many of those people and when you look at people like blackrock for instance fund managers from the states who are buying into not 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 just uh residential assets but also social rented Residential yeah. assets at the same time, so they see quite a big opportunity in residential, and you know, as an as a as a as an income producing asset, which is what it what it is, um, the the income from that has been relatively robust, and has not suffered in the same way. You know, if you if you look at um, occupancy rates, the t- the target occupancy rates are between sort of ninety seven and sort of ninety eight percent, and it, it's probably ambitious to think that you can achieve better than that in. Yeah dense in a, in an urban environment yeah. um because of the churn and the turnover and, and what have you um, um, but obviously during the, cu- the current process covid it, it's, it's been reduced somewhat not not hugely but it has probably dipped below 90 percent for most people and um but you know when you compare that against rents collected in other asset classes it's been substantially better and so i think they've seen how robust the asset class is and of course the thing is about asset classes like this is that it all might be very well to consider that you have a blue-chip tenant in your shopping centre or in your office uh, complex. But when you when you think about um, um, either the PRS or built to rent, you've basically got blue-chip tenants all round because fundamentally that's people's homes. And, yeah. you know, and people will pay to stay in their homes. That's their first priority, not to lose their roof over their head. So in terms of built to rent, if you've got four, four thousand you know uh, tenants around the country you've basically got four thousand blue chip tenants
2: yeah indeed and, and richard thinking about the well you know, if i if i if i look back at my own experience of build build to rent you know a lot has been made of the experience that renters uh, have and trying to differentiate that product with the ordinary prs how do you see it what's in it for the renter to be in a build to rent property do you think
0: um, I think just going to go back to one of the basic tenets of built to rent at the early stages was that the people like the Urban Land Institute um, were principal in driving a lot of the thinking in terms of, of renting and, and, and where it wasn't working and where it could work where it could work better. And I think the could work under the could work better sort of headline is is the experience of, of, of renting itself. And obviously you know it isn't just about build to rent but also you know what we do at housey it's all about you know how can you reduce that friction um towards from moving in from from you know looking for a property to, to making an offer and to moving in and that sort of stuff and then the experience afterwards and that's really about tenant engagement and i think that probably the build to rent sort of drove that right at the beginning you know it was the first you know, sector really to start thinking about not having deposits It was the first sector really broadly speaking to start thinking about we know that pets were important to people and you know shouldn't be excluded from it so and it was and it was also very much driven about you know trying to trying to um, ensure that the, the, the tenants or residents you know uh, thought of the place that they were living in as their home and that was really very important and to be extremely responsive
2: so security
0: so, in, yeah and, and in a way yeah, the security. Yeah, the security is there. It's and, and, you know, I, I, we, we might, well, we may not touch on Section Twenty One or Section Eight. A bit I'm sure we will
2: <laughs> a bit later on. But
0: yeah. you know, fund, fundamentally, there are very few circumstances that an institutional landlord would want to initiate a Section Twenty One. And for instance, they're not going to want family to move into the flats. They Indeed, want to, you know that sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah. You no, know, so the reasons for forever, forever having to. Um, to, to issue one of those notices is, is much
2: reduced and, so, and I was on. just going to ask on that on that point Richard do you think that you know the management of that resident is very different then you know we touched you mentioned section 21 and I totally get that an institutional investor is more likely to only be evicting um on a ground a fault based if you if if you will yeah. around anti-social behavior and renter is really yeah, yeah. rather than moving back in or, or selling the property because of course i'm sure they'd flog it onto another uh investor as a whole whole block um so yeah that obviously gives rise to you know more more um security i guess but do, do you see a, a the the resident managed in a different way where where you've got issues or difficulties particularly in covid times
0: yeah they've um they've worked very hard on on that on that sort of covid issue and and, and you know the real difference is and I, and I know that you know this from from your learning and experience at, uh, at touchstone is that it's very much about a customer relationship and a customer experience and what would people in any walk of life expect from from an experience of, of, of buying or either buying anything or renting anything um, and that, that doesn't mean clothes, uh, not, I mean houses, that mean you know, clothes or any sort of retail experience that you want to go in. You're expecting you know, an experience which is enjoyable. And, and, and that is what the, you know, the built to rent uh, sector is trying to achieve. Um, and it focuses very much on that. And um, to that end, very many of the people that they um, employ um, as um, uh, within their sector are, are ex-hotel um, staff and people like that. Who, who know how to delight their customers and how to how to meet their expectations. And perhaps, you know, in most cases, try and try and go over and above. So that's really very important to them. And in sort of COVID times, they spent an awful lot of time reaching out to, to, to their residents, either digitally in other, or in other ways, or with help, help over mindfulness and all that sort of stuff. And they focus very much on that to ensure that, that um, everybody in this difficult position that we're all in uh, are happier than perhaps they, they would otherwise be
1: Indeed, i suppose also with um if you're managing lots of properties you, you you can have certain economies of scale you know you'll probably have tradesmen who are available fairly quickly and and cleaning staff whereas for i suppose for a private landlord if you've just got one property it, it's more difficult to arrange those things what do you think well then?
0: uh yeah i mean the the thing depending on the size of the size of the property i mean you've generally got boots on the ground anyway
2: indeed yeah
0: yeah so uh, so that's that's pretty much so you probably will have a concierge or or like a hotel you have a back of house of sorts handyman um,
2: that sort of stuff
0: yeah and in, yeah and also bearing in mind that you're also doing asset management at the same yeah. time so you're doing health and safety and and all those sort of things about building management that you would do anyway which is which is i guess slightly difficult the asset management Generally speaking, in, in the PRS, is, is the landlord himself who goes around and does all those sort of repairs and so forth. Um, I think that one of, one of the things that I sort of, again, you know, being a landlord myself, one of the things that, that we try and do, we, we try and preempt all those things um, uh, sort of coming up. You know, I, I mean, at the housing, we have all this really smart tech that sort of, you know, highlights everything that's coming up. At EICRs at the moment, I think we've got a tiny proportion of our landlords now. Still requiring EICRs, and when I say mm. tiny. I mean, less than one percent.
1: Yeah,
0: um, and because we, we did a program, we have an automated program which which helps them. You know, a highlights the fact that they need them by April, and b b helps them sort of get them sorted out. Um, and and just to the, just to that end, I will just say it with people who do need EICRs, go ahead and say go out and get them. Indeed. Just because you've had just because you've had an inspection doesn't mean so you're going to pass that inspection. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Richard, one thing I was going to ask, I mean, we, yeah, we've we touched on this as we go, as, as we've gone, but, you know, if you're an individual landlord listening, listening to this, you know, what sort of things do you think, uh, you know, you would look to the build to rent to maybe learn from? And are there any sort of reverse learnings that build to rent might look at the, you know, the individual landlord space and, and think, you know, that they uh, can learn uh, from them too?
0: I. You know, I'm, I'm never someone who sort of goes out and says, this is what we do. Aren't we great? You know, and um, and uh, for people to say, you know, we're better than you are, because I, I I genuinely don't think that. There's space in the sector for both private landlords and corporate landlords because mm. the agility of of, of the private landlords is, is, is immense and they can pivot around all sorts of things. They don't have to ask anybody, they can just do it and get things sorted out. The one, there are, there are a few key things I think that, that private landlords can learn about, um, and this is a very personal thing actually as well, um, about um, Build about to Rent. And, and first off, first key thing for me is, and it's always been the key thing is that, is that it might be your asset, but it's someone else's home. Yeah. For me, that's absolutely key. If you can't get that, right, you get your head around the fact that it's someone else's home, you shouldn't be allowed. And, and that's kind of key. So that's one thing, that, that's not, not necessarily a build-to-rent thing. But I think the other thing, the big build-to-rent thing that, that probably the learning you could get from build-to-rent is all around customer service, about responsiveness, and about relating to your client, and about engaging with, with your tenant probably more than you would do. And you, you don't tend to, I mean, we don't tend to engage with with the tenants, I have our personal tenants as much as as much as we do, but we we are extraordinarily responsive. If we get an email from our tenant, we're back at, at it wherever we are in a, in less than half an hour. Um, so um, you know, and, and you know, again, if you've got an automated system that helps you do that, it's even quicker. So I would say, you know, customer service is is one, and certainly respecting your tenant's rights to their home is 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 another. Um, in terms of what um built rent can learn from, from the PRS, is basically sort of you know um the agility of what the PRS is able to do and also the learning and the data that you get from the PRS. I mean, bear in mind that PRS represents or the private landlord represents 97% of the of, of the market, even now. <laughs> so, you know, there might be, what is it? In the in England, we have around 4.4 million um PRS homes. Um, in the UK as a whole, it's just a tick over 5 million now it was 5.3 at one time but sort of come down a little bit um so you know we have lots of learning and data from from the prs as a whole um which helps us understand what the market is actually like uh, and if we didn't have that then you know, then we probably wouldn't be where we are as a as, a, as an industry
2: No, and i think that's a really important point actually the you know um the, the kind of looking at your property as a, 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 an asset uh, and recognizing it as the as the tenant's home um, is absolutely key because I guess as an individual landlord there can be a lot of baggage that comes with letting property I mean particularly if you've lived in it or particularly if you're not in it for the long haul um, you know as a consequence of the market you're making a short-term decision to make your property available but you you know that you're going to take it back. And I think, you know, from a, an individual landlord's perspective, would you suggest that that, you know, it's it's that difference between uh, being an individual and, a, and, a, and having a business mindset? You know, whether you're a build to rent or whether you're an individual, you're running a business um, uh, and whether you've got one property or 500 properties, really, that is a uh, an investment and in a business that you're running.
0: Yeah, it's kind of key. I mean, Build to Rent invests in the in, in the tenant themselves. I mean, they they want clearly their the tenant is key to their income, uh, and so keeping the tenant there as long as possible and as happy as possible, and obviously those two things go hand in hand, is super important to them. Um, and you're right about the, the private landlord and the baggage, because you know you, you one, one becomes a landlord for a multitude of reasons. You can inherit a home or you know, or, or you, you can buy it for a certain reason or you can, and the reasons you bought it, you could be looking for capital uplift or you could be looking for income. It's, I mean, there's like a whole range of reasons that you may have, may have become a landlord. But the central pillar of being a landlord is to understand that, you know, it's not your home, it's someone else's home. And you know we're all in our homes. If I no, I say I own our home now. If someone to walk through the front door at the moment and go, I'm just sort of you know nipping in to use the loo. Or go, excuse me.
2: <laughs> After you
0: decked <laughs> well, them. Are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, so um, you know, but that it is exactly the same way as um, mm-hmm. you know you should you should you should treat your your tenants' home with with absolute respect. Now I know, and we all know that. Um, the, the, much of the stories that go around the PRS are attributed to a minority either in both in terms of tenant behavior and, and animal behavior but they happen to be the stories that get them get amplified you know the loudest Indeed. so um but to my mind you know you shouldn't allow that amplification to affect your judgment about how you should treat people because in general i have found that uh, in general people are pretty reasonable
2: yeah i would agree with that on both on both sides of the fence as well yeah yeah mm.
1: With um, with the bill to rent um and sort of larger larger landlords, do you think this is likely to take off more? I mean, I read in the news that um, Lloyd's Bank are looking to become a, a big player in the private rented
0: sector. Do you think
1: this is a sign that maybe things are changing, or, or
0: what, what's yeah? Your well, comment? I mean, things are changing in in the built to rent industry. Um, built to rent is a big of a, a bit of a catchall for all sorts of mm. really sort of corporate ownership of, of residential blocks um in its purest sense it's built to rent specifically built to rent and more recently built to rent to be managed by large-scale institutional ownership but it can mean pretty much anything that's built to rent or has been built in the past maybe to sell but has been bought by by, by an investor and has decided to take an entire block um, for instance i mean we could look at say Hearthstone um, yes. investment, you know, and oh yes, of course you know, because to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Hearthstone not necessarily built to rent, but they're an institutional investor, predominantly in houses. Correct. Um, um, so um, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of interest in, in residential as a, as a whole, and how it's evolving is, is quite interesting because whilst we look at built to rent as being predominantly urban, which it is, and predominantly dense, which it is, there's a whole um, opportunity out there in less uh, less dense areas and less urban areas where rental might be more, more interesting. And Lloyd's move seems to be more based around uh, um, uh, 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 an investment that is not predominantly urban based, but probably thinking a little bit more about what other opportunities are out there similar to um, to what happens in in the prs and i think as you know the prs as a whole is in the majority of cases is made of houses and not flats it's about 62.5 percent i say about about yeah the, exactly <laughs> i think there's probably another another decimal point to go on there but um <laughs> but that's roughly what it is so you know it is it's more houses than flats and in the uk generally um the population lives in, in more houses than flats, and there are more houses than flats out there. And that's mm-hmm. about 80-20.
2: And, and Richard, I was going to ask, do you think that you know, we're obviously seeing a short-term impact on city living and uh, you know, people perhaps moving further afield and looking at gardens and stuff like that? Is that, you know, do, you, do you have a sense as to whether you know, that's Lloyd's motivation for doing it or or whether others will be motivated by that sort of you know the the, the sort of covid impact and whether it would stay with us
0: well it's, it's really quite hard to determine isn't it whether the covid impact and all the impacts on our behaviors are going to be permanent or temporary or, 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 how, or which ones are going to be permanent which ones are going to be temporary i suspect that the the, um, the large-scale experiment that we've all undergone from working from home has probably led us to think that we're probably going to work from home more. It's by how much more um, is the thing. And, and if we're going to work from home more, where do we want to be working from home? Mm-hmm. Um, and, do, do, you know, and if we can work from home more, how far are we then prepared to travel to get to work, if we're going to work, um, and how often are we prepared to do it? Um, There's no doubt that, for instance, the further you go out, the more space that you get and the more likelihood is you're going to be in a house rather than an apartment, for instance. And when also the thing is about houses that they're entirely defensible spaces. And when I say defensible spaces, I mean, from the moment you walk into where you live, that space is yours and you can defend it. And even the outside space you can defend as well, because whether it's a yard or a garden or whatever it happens to be. Whereas if you live in a flat, the moment you walk in through the front door, of your apartment block you're walking into spaces that other people occupy it doesn't matter whether it's uh, where the concierge is or the mm. space or a corridor or a lift or wherever those spaces are spaces you can't control so they're very, that's a that's one big difference between um, flat living and house living in a um, pandemic environment and the thing is about wearing masks for instance we all know because we've seen it for years is that are many very many people particularly from Places like Japan and, and the Far East have worn masks uh, yes. due to uh, concerns over pollution or or infection for years and years and years, um, and it's not inconceivable that we will continue to wear masks for for a few years yet, even even though we we're not particularly uh, delighted to do so. I think more people will do than, than will continue to do so than 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 have done in the past. Um, so, to get getting your question, I think that. I think that there is going to be a permanent move for some people away from dense urban areas. I don't think it's going to be absolutely massive, but I think it's going to be enough for investors to start thinking about where they're going to deploy capital uh, yeah. and in what type of asset class. And if you bear in mind, and I think that I probably know this in PRS, people do stay longer in houses anyway.
2: Indeed, no, absolutely. Um, so from I suppose if
0: you house, were to... To say to someone, where
1: would you rather live, you know, a a nice house with a garden or a a sort of city centre flat, most people would would go for the house and
0: garden, particularly if they've got a family. (laughs) Do do you know, that question is one that's been plaguing me in terms of uh, research for about five days. And (laughs) you'd have thought that a simple question like that would have been asked by researchers hundreds of times, but no. They do want to know more, more more granular questions, you know. So I'll ask the question like that, but add a load of other bits on it. But when I say the simple binary question, do you prefer to live in a house or a flat? It's not a question that anyone seems to have ever asked.
2: It's oh. often the most simple ones, isn't it?
0: <laughs> well, I've currently got a survey on SurveyMonkey going right now because I'm so <laughs> vexed by that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought, God, I must do this. I'm,
2: I'm interested, Richard, thinking about that then, and thinking about, you know, the, the pure build-to-rent models kind of being, you know, big blocks, city centre-ish. Do we think that, in the, well, certainly in the short term, but maybe in the medium term, that that might have an impact on on rents as maybe people kind of disperse out a little bit, and the very very significant rents of city centres, perhaps correct is maybe the wrong expression, but you know what I mean, we'll work themselves out to a lower level, uh, given that the demand is, is a bit less.
0: Well, I noticed, I think it was Zoopla, I can't remember, but um, very recently said that they saw a resurgence in interest in sort of city-centred living, and that's sort of nationally speaking, I, and I wouldn't be surprised to see that.
1: Mm. Obviously
0: there was, you know, a, a move away from city centres that um, that was for obvious reasons. Um, uh, it's really going to be about um, supp- that bit is going to be su- about supply and demand in a sense, and and how many of those city centres are oversupplied and how many are undersupplied. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's b- very difficult to know whether Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, you know, Birmingham, and those sort of big regional centres are oversupplied at the moment, or whether what's in the pipeline is going to create an oversupply. I think what's what's quite clear, and as question that i'm always slightly concerned about is 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 renting to me is something which isn't um isn't a wholly isn't wholly based on supply and demand um, it is funny enough when there's too much supply but not quite so much when there's not quite so much when there's uh too little supply because at the end of the day it's not a finance renting isn't a financeable uh, thing you can do you can't borrow money to to rent it's it's on the whole you can't do that you you can only really pay in rent what you have in your pocket at the end of the month um which is why rents by and large tended to have followed um uh income increases over time um pretty much so and you can see that you know as a, as a big graph going back way into the 70s and when there was a huge inflation we re- uh, peak in around the, in the early 70s you saw that rents also peaked by the same amount so you know pretty much follows what income is um built rent isn't the cheapest um in its in its highest amenity form isn't isn't the cheapest of rent so it's looking more at lifestyle than it is at, at sort of normal renting and it's always been interesting to me and it's been good to see that built to rent is now coming into more mid-market rent yeah. which i think is really important it, it has to do that because that you know, there uh, is
2: a perception is expensive, isn't it? Isn't there? Let's there is. Uh, and,
0: and you know, that's not necessarily wrong in, in, in many mm. cases. And the perception, but it's like many perceptions. Many perceptions come from very early uh, thoughts about something and then are not corrected later on. And the early built-rent schemes were those schemes that competed very strongly and had to compete very strongly with house builders and a for sale market. And a yeah. for sale market. And, and those and competing for land on that basis meant They had to go down a route where it was highly amenitized and a little bit more expensive in order to make those returns that you had to make. That's not so much the case now.
1: Richard, what about um, the the increasing um, modular building um, practices? Um, Is is that having an effect?
0: It's coming in a little bit, uh, you know, not quite as much as I'd like to see. Um, Mark Farmer, who's the sort of MMC, which is you know uh, modern methods of construction champion for the government. Um, and, and I do, do, do speak from time to time about it, and he's a huge champion of that. It is more difficult to implement in large schemes um, because of the complexity of the buildings. But if you look down at Greenwich, is it called Greenwich Key, where Essential Living have got a scheme there which is now live, that's a modular scheme. It wasn't envisaged as a modular scheme to start with, but it became such. And I know, I know that a lot of people are starting to look at modular. Um, it's, from my experience um, of having lived in a building that's had some element of modular employed in it um, the kitchens and the bathrooms with, with pods for instance the accuracy of the work is very sort of machined if you like it's very accurate um, and if we can see that coming into house building then I'm, I would I would be very hopeful we would see better quality of homes coming through it's more suitable in my view i um, happy to be corrected on this in sort of the single family home market you know where it's easier when you're where you're building maybe a two-story two home or a terrace or so forth where it's easier to to uh, to get those things to site and where you're not sort of building high so I think the complexities um, and the engineering um, difficulties are, are less profound um, but uh, MMC also sort of goes hand in hand with sustainability as well yes so we're probably going to see a lot awful lot of uh, eco homes coming through which are not in the main sort of uh, modular, but I think, you know, I think if the, if the sector can really get its act together, then in the future of housing in the UK is looking very rosy.
2: Indeed, and Richard, just maybe one final question then. Thinking about, you know, build to rent again and kind of being the innovators on fees, tenure, uh, you know, uh, experience, that sort of stuff. Where do you see it going in the next five or 10 years? where does it innovate to next?
0: Well, um, I'm always a little bit con- con- concerned about innovation because sometimes innovation for innovation's sake is not very Indeed, helpful. That's it's helpful. Um, and we all probably know, we all probably have experiences as, as, as a tech company coming to you and saying, listen, I've got a solution there, where's the problem?
1: Mm. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> <laughs>
0: actually looking, for, looking for a problem. Um, but where I see um, bill to rent going, the sector going, and it's probably isn't going to be helpful to the PRI sector in, 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 in the whole, uh, in terms of competition, Is in the single-family home market. You know we do live in more houses than we do in flats, um, and the population and a high proportion of the population live in houses than in flats. And those obviously the strict correlation between that, and the opportunities to build houses are wider than they are with flats. Um, And it isn't just that. And if you're thinking about what we'd currently currently do, uh, quite sophisticated buildings. There's a degree of expertise needed to that that is relatively rare um not wholly so there are obviously contractors who can build very tall very sophisticated very complex buildings but that level of sophistication and complexity isn't isn't bound into normal houses and so what we will see is that because there are more opportunities to build houses and because the opportunity to partner with a wider range of uh, delivery uh, partners is going to be there well I i think that um I personally think that single-family housing will overtake, in time, the uh, the densely urban built-to-rent sector as a as the widest um, owned uh, by institutions sector in the UK. Over time, it is more difficult to do it because you can't get the immediate scale that you would do, and also you don't need the same scale. For instance, you wouldn't put 500 houses on the outskirts of Winchester and expect to let them you might put 60, mm. yeah, all that sort of stuff. So, but, you, but there are more Winchesters than there are Manchesters.
2: Quite, yes. <laughs> Very good. Okay.
1: Well, I think we probably um, probably run out of our time now. So um, I think it probably remains for us to say, thank you very much for coming along and talking to us. It's been fascinating. I've, I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah,
1: it's been good to speak to you both.
2: Thank you, Richard. Thanks a lot.
1: Well, that was a very interesting talk wasn't
2: it yeah i thought i thought it was and you know any sort of individual landlords listening uh, listening into that will i think you know take away richard's comments about customer service customer experience and really you know treating your tenant as a uh, as a customer and looking at your even if it's one property as a uh, your, your investment as a business
1: yeah, yeah. Don't go barging in without getting permission first, I suppose,
2: is No, exactly. But it's also really interesting, I think, to sort of see his his comments about, you know, the growth of of uh, Build to Rent and the projected growth uh, and the, you know, the, the looking at the the more affordable uh, side of side of life as well. But I do think I was kind of relieved to hear his comments about the two sectors kind of coexisting with each other. Mm. Um, and I do think, you know, whilst bill-to-rent um, providers may well have done uh, a very good job uh, during COVID, um, I think we can apply the same level of praise to individual landlords who have gone over and above and negotiated rent deferrals and reductions and, and yeah. you know, generally looked out, of their, looked out for their tenants.
1: I mean, it, it is surprising in a way that the bill-to-rent is such a small proportion of the whole private rented sector...
2: Yeah, and I, I guess it, it's got a massive lead time, hasn't it? You know, yeah. thinking about um, some of the examples that Richard uh, was 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 giving there. You know, uh, and particularly the comment around agility. If you're an individual landlord with a pot of money, um, you can go out and make an investment and get bring that to the market quite quickly. If you're a build to rent provider then you you know you've obviously got volume and, and very deep pockets but you've got to go through planning you've got to find the right sort of land you've got to go through the right sort of construction yes. seven da, 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 da. years he
1: said i mean Indeed. that's a long time
2: it is it is a really long time um <laughs> i will be a very old man in seven years time i don't bear thinking about
1: <laughs> nonsense nonsense you're be. <laughs>
2: you were too late
1: spring <laughs> yes, chicken forever compared to me anyway <laughs> So, well, I think we better uh, we better draw to a close. So um, uh, I think it remains for us to say thank you so much to our very special guest, Richard Berridge, giving up his time to come and talk to us. And uh, he's, um, he's Ben Beadle. and he's the landlord.
2: He's Tessa Sheperson, she's the lawyer, and we'll see you next time.
1: Yes, we'll be back again in due course.